Älskar du den här podden? Stötta den genom IKAs nya supporterfunktion. Det är helt upp till dig hur mycket du vill bidra med och det finns ingen bindningstid. Klicka på länken i poddbeskrivningen för att visa din uppskattning och stötta podden. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Om man har tagit en paus från poddandet men inte gärna vill släppa det helt. Ja, då är det bra att när man väl släpper ett nytt avsnitt så ska man släppa ett som bär lite tyngd. Jag har haft förmånen att gå på ett antal olika turer med några olika bergsguider och det är verkligen en upplevelse som jag alltid kommer att bära med mig. Och det är även en yrkesgrupp som jag hyser en väldigt stor respekt för. Därför kändes det otroligt hedrande när frågan kom om jag ville vara moderator och samtalsledare då svenska bergsguideorganisationen SBO firade 30-årsjubileum på Klättergymmet Momo i Stockholm. Jag heter Magnus Ormestad och det här är avsnitt 256 av podcasten Husky. Josef Westerlund är avgående ordförande för SBO. Okay. Eh, Josef Westerlund heter jag. Och är bergsguide. Och just nu sitter jag som också ordförande för den svenska bergsguidesorganisationen. Där vi nu, i och med det här lilla evenemanget så har vi lite försökt uppmärksamma den delen av att SBO eller svenska bergsguidesorganisationen har fyllt 30 år. Egentligen har vi funnits 32 år nu, för det är från 1990 som organisationen bildades. Det har ju varit flera dagar, ni har haft utbildningsdagar också för aspiranterna då, eller? Ja, varje, varje årsmöte som vi har så dels så har vi ju det som vi pratar om CPD-dagar, alltså våra fortbildningsdagar som alla guider går mer eller mindre varje år eller vartannat år. Så en vanlig sån här årsmöteshelg så har vi ofta som en utbildningsdag för de som är kandidater och aspiranter, alltså de som är under utbildning och sen så har vi fortbildningsdagar för de som är guider. I, ja, alla guider ska ha fortbildningsdagar. X antal dagar per, per år kan man säga. Då. Och sen brukar vi oftast ha också en diskussionsdag där man pratar och funderar över aktuella ämnen eller saker som har varit och hänt under året. Allt från att gå igenom 
olyckor och casegrejer och miljögrejer och annat som ligger på tapeten. Och sen självklart så har vi då det som är årsmöte. Men en sån här årsmöteshelg så innehåller väldigt mycket olika saker. Så lite social events, middagar och cocktailpartyn och en boulder-tävling som pågår precis utanför oss nu också. Så är det i år är det ju lite speciellt då i och med att vi fyller 30 år så... så men en av grundgrejerna med att egentligen ha en så här lång årsmöteshelg det är ju att träffas och kunna göra saker tillsammans. Uh, och uh, för det är alla guider så är ju mer eller mindre utspridda över halva, och åtminstone hela Europa då. Uh, och uh, det gör ju att det är inte så ofta vi ses på ett och samma ställe. Vilket gör ju de här uh, middagar och träffar och bowlertävlingar och allt annat så det är ju väldigt kul att bara umgås. Och det är en ganska viktig del i som själva också arbetar med att känna varandra och sådana här då, och tryggheten när man är ute. Ehm... Um. Kan du berätta lite om SBO för att du är själv boende i Finland. Vi sitter nu i Stockholm och det är olika nationaliteter som har varit med och som är med under de här dagarna. Hur är organisationen upplagd idag? Ja. SBO så kan man säga att, att SBO är lite av ett nomad, nomadutbildning kan man säga. Att vi, vi utbildar ju i väldigt många olika länder i, runt om i Europa då. och vi tar ganska hårt fasta på den delen att vi försöker vara så internationella som möjligt och det gör ju att ja, så att utbildningarna finns ju lite här och där men det gör också att vi är mer eller mindre ett uppsamlingsland för, och för en massa mindre länder som till exempel Finland Island och Danmark så, så går ju många gånger genom SBO då. för att vi dels är SBO en liten organisation som inte det räcker inte till med svenskar för den helt enkelt. Men sen är de här grannländerna runt omkring då som, som kommer in och där försöker vi som hjälpa till så att folk ska kunna gå på ett smidigt sätt då, genom vår utbildning. Då. En, en fråga som jag har tänkt på de här dagarna nu inför förberedelserna inför det här också är att när det är så här många olika länder kan man prata om en olik om olika bergskulturer i de här länderna och hur de på något sätt har kanske har de förändrats under de här 30 åren som SBO har funnits liksom, nu pratar vi Norge, vi pratar Finland, Sverige Island, Danmark kontra den kanske europeiska dominerande bergskulturen kring Alpländerna är det en finns det en clash här eller har det liksom varit en en process där, där kulturerna på något sätt alla blir mer och mer jämlika och jämställda. Så när vi pratar om, om man pratar om Skandinav, de skandinaviska länderna eller Finland och Skandinavien med Finland inte vår räkna till så där, så där skulle jag säga att jag tycker nog att vi på det viset har dragit under alla år någorlunda åt samma håll. Klart att det finns skillnader i språk och sånt här som, som gör att det blir utmaningar att träffas och sånt här. Så den skandinaviska friluftskulturen så upplever jag ju att det har varit ganska liknande i det att det är någonting som är väldigt rotat i, i bara sättet att vara eller kulturen vår. Så att vår friluftskultur jämfört med till exempel Alpländerna har eller resterande Europa, där ser det ju annorlunda ut. Jag tror att en av, en av orsakerna till det är ju bland annat vår allemansrätt som gör att vi har haft möjlighet att skapa en helt annan sån här kulturer av att vara ute med dem. 
Så vidare. Det finns en clash däremellan. Det ser jag väl inte riktigt. Det är ju alltid... Ska vi säga SBO i sig så... Vi jobbar i så många olika länder. Så då försöker man ju också anpassa sig till, till vad som gäller i de länderna så gott det går. Det är en ganska viktig del i, i det att lära sig att, att göra det så att det inte blir de här clasherna. Men det är klart att... Ja, sen så behöver det inte vara en, en clash. Jag vet inte, det var kanske olyckligt ordval, men kanske mer liksom... Att man märker att så här, olikheter och olikheter, att det liksom kan vara lite... Men så är det ju, alltså, om man tittar på Frankrike, Italien, eh, Schweiz, Österrike och Tyskland och, och skandinaviska länder och sånt. Att klart att det, det är olikheter och det finns alltid utmaningar när det finns olika språk. Och det gör ju att, att det finns också olika syn på som hur man ser på kultur, kulturer kring bergsporten och sånt men jag skulle säga att Skandinavien kanske är ganska vi är inte lika vana med att, att ha, vi är inte lika vana med guidekulturen som till exempel Alpländerna är där, det finns en lång lång tradition med, med guidekultur det här börjar ju också ändras väldigt mycket i de skandinaviska länderna och i Sverige och sånt här också att, att det blir mer och mer guidning och det kanske allt gör med att folk vet mindre och mindre om egentligen naturen och hur våra ute och sånt här så, uh, jo, det finns skillnader, det gör det. Det är det korta svaret på den här frågan. Då. Men som allt annat som har med kultur att göra så är det, en, det är inte en statiskt uh, stadie utan det är hela tiden någonting som förändras och utvecklas och uh, idéer uh, som man byter med varandra och så att säga förenas och så. Hela poängen som är själva IFMGA, International Federation of Mountain Guide Association är ju att samman binda samman länder och binda samman länder som har berg och att möjliggöra att man ska kunna resa och göra expeditioner och upptäcka varandras berg och länder så här. Och det gör ju att det blir en väldigt speciell community också med, med inom bergsguiderna. Så oavsett om du är i Sverige eller Norge eller i Alpländerna så är det folk som är bergsguider så finns det ju en väldigt stor respekt och vilja att hjälpa varandra. Så upplever jag det. Du lämnar ifrån det ordförandeskapet nu, SBO. Var, år 2022, snart 2023, var, var befinner sig SBO idag på den här 30-åriga resan? Det är en bra fråga. Vi är en liten organisation som växer. Vi är ett, i dagens läge en, en liten organisation som har, är väldigt väl respekterad eller vad man ska säga, från de andra IFMGA-länderna. Och det arbetet så sätter vi väldigt mycket tid på att, att um, ha goda relationer till våra grannländer och sådana här och andra, europeiska länderna. Så uh, vår uppgift skulle säga att bli större och större i och med att också behovet av guider och folk vill vara ute men inte ha kunskaperna för det. Så att um, vi är en liten organisation som sagt och säkert växer. Sen kommer vi knappast att växa jättemycket för det finns inte allt för många människor som kommer på den sjuka som, idén. Exakt, som är tillräckligt galna. Ja. Jo, för det är, ju ett, det är ju ett väldigt speciellt jobb. Och så vidare, ett smart val att bli bergskart. Så det vet jag, gudarna, om det är. Men det, 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 det är ett visst, visst folkslag, eller vad man ska säga, som dras till det. Och, och framförallt har du den här personen och vill göra någonting så är det ju... Ett väldigt starkt arbete som ger väldigt mycket också. Om man lyssnar på det här och känner att man kanske är en av de här 
som är tillräckligt galna eh, för att eh, ta nästa steg. Va, vad ska man göra då? No, det, det, vi kan ju börja med att vår hemsida, där finns ju alla förkravslistor och vad som behövs för att kunna söka till utbildningen och sen finns det ju att bli slipklätterinstruktör och, och sen det finns det alltid möjligheten att ringa till någon i styrelsen i utbildningsgruppen för att förklara vad som gäller eller få den här informationen och vill man ha tips på, på vart man, vad man borde göra för att snygga till sin ansökningslista och sånt här så det är ju bara hjärtligt välkommen att ta kontakt. Det är ju sist och slutligen vanliga människor med ett stort intresse som blir bergsguider. Så. Tack så jättemycket. Vi spelade in två samtal under dagen och eftersom deltagarna var från Sverige, Finland, England och Island kom bägge samtalen att ske på engelska. Det första samtalet kallades SBO, Past, Present and Future. Almost, correct enough. Uh, first of all, I just want to say like a, a, a big thank you to the SBO organization. It's I feel very honored to get this invite. I've been fortunate enough to uh, share some really memorable tours with some of you mountain guides in here, and it's a, a profession that I, I highly respect. So it feels um, it feels very good to be able to give something back in this context. Um, so this will be. More of a discussion, I hope, rather than an interview. And uh, I guess most people here know who these guys are, but for the sake of uh, courtesy, common courtesy, we could just, uh, if you could just introduce yourself, starting with you, Mr. Mark. Hi, my name is Mark Diggins. Um, I've been a mountain guide maybe for 40, 45 years. Um, I've been involved with the development of the SVO from the beginning. 30 years ago, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to talk today about my experiences with the SBO and development. Uh, hi, I'm Jonas Alayuma, and I'm also a mountain guide aspirant, in the same class with uh, Martin and Karin, which you just saw here. Um, so, yeah, on that path to become uh, a licensed mountain guide, we have our last exams coming in January and in March next year. So Mike Wright, uh, I've been working since yeah, more than 20 years and I've been responsible for the, the training, technical director uh, for the training uh, for 10 years. So this is my final, uh, final year, so I'm stepping down now. So, but it's uh, been really interesting to be giving to, to the organization in this way, so yeah. Okay, I'm Thomas Weber. Uh, I became a mountain guide in 1999 and like one of the early groups. I worked partly as guide and also have done other work and I think I can maybe contribute with some uh, memories from the early days and some reflections maybe from a little bit the outside of being a mountain guide. Sounds great. <coughs> um, so Mr. Mark, could you uh, take us back some 30 plus years how this all started and how it came to be, who were the key actors and uh, why were, why, 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 did you be, why did you become involved? Why did they choose you? Um, well, did, you did you lose a bet and you had to do this as a punishment? 
Uh, yeah, that's a question I often ask myself, but why me? <laughs> but actually, no, everything's fine. I, I think um, it's very interesting to go back 30 years, and I, when um, I was invited to this function, that it was 30, they said 30 year anniversary. I said, really? I thought it was maybe much less than that. So it's a real surprise to me that it was 30 years ago. Um, but I think we shouldn't underestimate the role that Johann Arnegard played at that time, more than 30 years ago. And I think it's good to reflect and look back at that time and the culture and the environment that we were in. Uh, in the UK and actually also in Sweden, there's a really, really strong amateur ethic. And so anybody operating or working in the mountains for profit or for gaining money was really absolutely a no-no. It was mostly volunteers. It was, um, so, so that was the sort of situation. So that was the climate that Johan was in when he thought, okay, I've been to the Alps, I've been to Chamonix, I've seen how mountain guides are operating and the professionalism uh, that he observed at that time, you know, this would be really good for us. And so he tried, um, I, I'm, of course, he came back to Sweden and discussed these ideas with uh, communities and peoples and there was resistance against it. People didn't think that it would be appropriate because of this culture of, of um, amateur culture and not profiting from working in the mountains, etc. So that, so that was a, a hurdle for him to cross and the group that um, uh, Johan got together um, in those early days. And I'd maybe just like to bring in um, Dick here because Dick was part of that group. And Dick, it'd be really interesting because that group formed and um, what's the story behind that formation and your thoughts on having an award, the badge. <laughs> <laughs> How did I get involved in this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Dick, you want some? Um, uh, I, I'm in the first group. We were the we were five people. Uh, I think I'm the only one here today. Yeah. Uh, one of the other guys is in Antarctica now and uh, the other guys are at home in Swiss. Uh, um, yeah, why? Um, I think that you, from the beginning, had made this special work at Idrottshögskolan, uh, uh, where he actually uh, were speaking about, do we need mountain guides in Sweden? Uh, and he came to the conclusion, he did this with another guy, Mikke Francien. Uh, he did this, and he, the conclusion was that, that we need guides. And from there on I came in, uh, and um, we started with some seminars, uh, bringing all people together, which were actually then working. And like Mark said, the ethics was quite strong towards making money out of guiding. So I remember the first meeting, there were all these uh, testosterone guys. <laughs> uh, and they said, okay, all of us here, let's certify each other. So let's be mountain guides. And both me and you, and we had another agenda. We said, no, 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 we want to aim for a higher goal. And that's becoming a member of the IFMJ, the, the, the International Federation, because we wanted to work in the Alps. 
Uh, and from there on, it went on. Uh, and uh, then Yuan, who, who did the, sort of the big work there, uh, he, he spoke a lot, uh, networking a lot, uh, came in contact with Mark. We had a couple of more seminars. Uh, uh, and then in uh, the early 90s, I can't remember now, it's so far in the distance. Uh, uh, we had this meeting in Tabi, where actually the, the organization was founded. And when the organization actually was founded, the interest from these people who were with us from the beginning dropped. Like that. So no one was actually interested then. And we ha had to take a lot of shit, actually, in the beginning. And I said to Mark just 50 minutes ago that, that uh, it's actually just in the recent 10 years that we actually, when we are now around 60 guides, that you could actually see that the acceptance for making money out of, out of this is accepted. Yeah. So I think that's the... I think Yuan, he had this view from the beginning, and, and you know, we are speaking about Yuan because he isn't here. Uh, he is... Um, He's quite ill, he has a problem with his eyes and so on, so, but otherwise he would be here. But without him, we wouldn't be here. So, so um, yeah. Thank you. So thanks, Dick. So I came into the scene, uh, invited by Johan, and obviously I, I, I met with these five very experienced uh, climbers, skiers, mountaineers, and um, for me, I was a, also the training director back in the UK with the British Mountain Guides, and I designed a new system for them. And, our, and I think there are similarities in, in, in us as peoples, I think. Um, drink a lot. <laughs> uh, and um, the ethic, of course, was very similar. Um, so it, it was quite daunting for me to become part of this and to start this process and so as I said yesterday I had said to Johan that really this is a 10-year project um, and at, after 10 years we hoped that, that IFMJ would accept us and indeed that's w what actually happened but um, I felt that in order for that process to be absolutely successful that the guys that I was working with had to be of a, a really super high standard. So there'd be absolutely no question at all when they're observed by others uh, from the IFMJ that these guys were really good and that the SBO should be accepted into the IFMJ. So there were some hard times and some lots of challenging um, stories, which I'm sure keep growing and developing. So that was the start for me, maybe. Uh, but, but, but it was, I take it, um, at some point the, um, the Swedish uh, would-be guides that they would have to kind of prove their spurs uh, for, the, uh, for the European organization. They, they, did they put them to the, to the test in the beginning? Uh, so the process for me was to work with them in all those disciplines of the skiing, navigation, ice climbing, um, to, um, if you like, put in my 
thoughts on my experience and what I'd done back in the UK and the standards there, I would, I would um, generate that standard with the first five. Uh, and um, so that, that was quite a long process. So that was probably about eight years, I would say, of, of those courses and in those different disciplines. And then when we felt we were ready, they applied to the IFMJ. And then people from the IFMJ came, observed, uh, and, and then they did the, the examinations of, of the guides, your guides association. But some of the reasons behind um, the forming of SBO was, was in part to, um, to enable like domestic, uh, to, to be able to, to operate in Sweden and Scandinavia, but also for Swedish-born mountain guides that they would be able to operate in, in the Alps, for instance, on the same terms as, as the locals. Yeah, it's to, it's to become of a standard whereby you can operate worldwide. But also, I think um, having the uh, IFMJ status would give the SBO a really good status also worldwide. And so I think that was the ambition. So it's not so much the objective, this is what we're going to do and where we can work. It was actually, okay, if we're going to be credible, if we're going to have a long uh, goal, and as Dick said, it's 30 years to now, it's, you know, the fruits of of it of developing um, are present, then uh, you know that that's being a part of the IFMG was important. But what has been the uh, perhaps the most surprising uh, challenges for for this like for this taking more or less twenty years to become like fully accepted and established and so on? One of the key things right at the very beginning is the transformation from um, and the molding of an individual. And an individual, everyone here is really talented and really capable in their own sports and activities. And they're driven by their own ambition of grades and places and so on. When you become a guide, that's a significant change in that you now have to, um, you, you're not going into the mountains for your benefit, although your experience and and enthusiasm is part of it, you're going for the benefits of the people that you're taking into the mountains. And that transition is really uh, quite subtle sometimes, and so that was quite hard to achieve in the beginning. I s explained yesterday about, you know, if, if I'm just going ski touring and I want to go up that mountain, I pretty much go in a straight line, but, if you, but that, you would exhaust clients doing that. So, you know, it's, you'd choose a more gradual way of going up because it's better. So that's just one simple example. So that was, that was the biggest um, To perhaps fast forward a bit and open up the floor a bit for more, more discussions. Um, a lot has changed over 30 years, like the, the skis have grown fatter, the equipment lighter. We have social media and climate awareness and so on. What would you say sitting here, like what would be the um, the biggest changes over the, these 30 years for the, from the perspective of a mountain guide and the mountain guide profession? Maybe I could just say uh, th the thing that doesn't change is the fundamental guiding skills of how you manage the short roping, moving in mountains, dealing with people, looking at hazard, dealing with hazard. That is, those things change and they probably haven't changed th those same uh, ways to do things were being carried out 
in those first ascents of the Alpine peaks in you know, 1890s and so on. So that hasn't changed. But I'm sure these guys, social media uh, and people's access to information, that's changed dramatically. So maybe if someone else could answer that question. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Absolutely. It's been, it's so much information nowadays. And it's like on the internet and on different platforms, you have pictures and uh, route reports and so on, which is also a good thing because then we know about maybe the new dangers or like dangers that come with the climate change and the warming and so on. So we, we get kind of a heads up without actually going somewhere ourselves and realizing like shit, <laughs> it's like now it's, we're not in a, in a good place. So it has its goods and bads, plus and minus. Guys, let's uh, work now on this one. Yeah. So yeah, for for me, I see uh, the biggest change. Uh, the information is, is of course a big thing, but also the the people that uh, we get as clients today, they they uh, have a more pushy agenda what they want to do, uh, and um, as I see it, when I started, it was I could decide more or less what I wanted to do with my clients, but now they have, ah, I want to do this, and I've seen this, uh, this tick list, and this route, or this descent, uh, and they have that. Otherwise, they do it on their own. Mm. They're good uh, people. Uh, they can do certain things. So they go with the guide to do these really difficult things. Um, and with the changing environment of global warming and uh, the conditions that change, so it's a much, much co more complex environment to deliver these things uh, so a big part of the guiding skill or uh, what the guide really needs to be able to do now today is to say no no we can't do that not this week or maybe next year I mean uh, that's a big it was much more stable when I started the conditions that you knew you could do yeah. <coughs> safe skiing mm. in a certain week now it could be oh we can't do anything uh, we have to really stay down in the uh, in the forest yeah. Be because it's uh, less predictive. Yes, it's extreme weather coming and going, and uh, it's uh, it's also before uh, when I started, I could after a snowfall, I could <coughs> ski ten days with clients untracked if I moved around a little bit. Now, because of uh, the information, it it's much more difficult to deliver what they want, this untracked, nice skiing, for example. Uh, you want to deliver that product that they expect, and it's more difficult today. Can I just come in on one point there? And that is that, um, yeah, one of the greatest challenges as a guide for me was, you know, you've got to earn a living. And, you know, you, 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 someone engages you to, to go on a journey up a mountain or something. And I used to, find myself under a lot of pressure to deliver. And then I, had, I just had a flip in my mind and, and I thought, right, okay, if I think it's too dangerous or I don't like it or I'm not comfortable, um, I, I, I say, stop, I'm not gonna work. I would rather not get paid, lose money, than actually be in that situation with a person which I feel uncomfortable with because you have to respect that gut feeling if something is not right then and you you ignore that gut feeling then it has consequences down the road so to me that was a, a really um, 
bit of an epiphany. So once I started to put that in my mind, then I, I was able to just refuse or go down or say, look, I'd rather give you your money back than put myself in a situation where I, was, I felt really uncomfortable. So that's going on your point. Uh, yeah. I don't know whether you felt that. Thomas. Yeah, yeah no, I think the, coming back to Michael's competent conditions, I mean, it's not only that today it's more variable, but, but also the, the more extreme guests, they want to do the more extreme things because they've seen them on YouTube or on Facebook or whatever. They don't understand that this is someone who's waited for these conditions maybe two years to ski this very radical couloir or descent or whatever it is. And they, I, I have this book this weekend, I want to do it. It's, it doesn't work like that. And that's where we need to trust our knowledge and competence and and sort of in a good way have the client to change their mind to something more realistic. Yeah. Uh, I think that's... Uh, and do you find now that because of so social media and people's desire to do an ob uh, carry out an objective that they've seen, do you find that there is a mismatch between their ability and physical preparedness to actually being able to do those things? So they're so affected by the image and putting themselves in that situation, actually, they're often physically not as strong either. Do you find that as well? I, I, <clears throat> I think both yes and no, because yeah. some clients, yes, but also I think that it's a general trend in society, like with health and fitness. So many clients are reasonably fit and they spend a lot of time training so um, but I think it's, it's more they are maybe fit for an hour or two in the gym maybe not the full day on the mountain exactly which is of course also another thing yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess uh, one 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 good thing is that as a as a total rookie like who, who've never uh, partaken in any courses or anything or anything you can still read up on it online and you can take course maybe not courses online but you can look through hours and hours of YouTube videos and listen to podcasts and whatnot and, and to, to set forth in the mountains with some kind of uh, uh, assumption that now I, I know mountains and, and then when they hire a mountain guide they approach you with some kind of cocky attitude like well I've been doing some studying about this and so on and, and, and you have to kind of balance that I mean yeah, I think yes and uh, to some extent, but, but I think the, the, the one that it's, if you hire a guide, you do it because you want the comfort of the professional advice. I think the one that you maybe allude to here is the one that don't hire a guide. Okay, uh, I, I think. That's, yeah, that's right actually. Because there are some people, it's a bit like, um, if you look at an onion, right, an onion, what they see is only the skin. Uh, but we actually can see all those layers. And so when we are making a decision about doing something, we see all those layers in an onion. Uh, whereas somebody who wants to engage us doesn't. So I think that's um, something that we have to consider as well. 
and that, that's that type of person, but also that once you become a guide and once you have some clients that come with you and, and often they stay with guides for many, many years, it's because they have a connection with that person. And it's not just about, you know, grades. It's about the fact that they have em the guide has empathy. They have a really good connection and understanding. And you are ambassadors for uh, the mountains and you are there to introduce people to the environment that you're passionate about and, and which you love and why you become a mountain guide. So there are two very different types of people, I think. Um, I have one thing that I think is kind of a big change and also a big kind of challenge for us. Uh, the smartphones today, uh, people are so kind of, uh, they trust the information on the iPhone or the, the smartphone so much. So you have uh, for avalanche information, for example, uh, it's a three today. Uh, there's an accident two years ago up in Norway where I worked. and. And it's been a storm for days, uh, and then it was a two before uh, on the scale, the avalanche scale, and uh, because of no no information coming, and and Varsam put out a low uh, because there were no information coming in. So I was like, how can it be still two? So people planned. They looked. These young people. Uh, they looked for the weekend. Oh, it's a two. Ah, so then you, what can you plan f with the two? That's the, mm. They trust information so much. Uh, and I was like, this is wrong. Huh? Mm. Uh, I know from, from a storm with this amount of uh, snow coming, uh, no one knows what it's out there. It can't be a two. Or like, it's very unlikely that it's a two. So they planned a two aggressive tour, a normal tour, but still a little bit aggressive, and they both died. Huh? And I was like, uh, it would have been better in many ways that if you don't have that wrong information, they, then you would so be more... It gives more a false sense of security. Yeah, it's a false because of what you trust in the phone. Instead of having knowledge and, and taking some years to learn before you start doing that route with your own skills, you, ah, it's, good. it's good conditions, let's go. And they were 18 years old. Um, if, if, if we look at the clients that, that um, uh, hire some mountain guides, um, uh, has, has there been any changes from, like, from the 90s to the 2000s and so on? Like what type of people um, uh, decides to, to, to hire mountain guides? Your typical client today versus the typical client when you started? And, yeah, uh, when I started, it was mostly in the Alps. Uh, I've been working mostly in the Alps, but now I see that, and the, up in Scandinavia, it was like free Luf's, uh, yeah, free Luf's culture of uh, you do it your own. You have your big backpack and you go out and you tent and so on. Uh, but people didn't, and the same in Norway, I think, uh, very strong culture that you do it on your own, and that have changed now. Younger people, they they want to. They have one week or they have a short window and they hire a guy to maximize their experience and, and what they can do with that vacation. And then they hire, and if that goes in society in general, I think you hire sp specific professionals for, spe if you're a golfer, you have a, a pro that helps you to develop and so on. So it's like you're looking for that professional yeah. help to yeah. maximize and that is what young younger generations look for also in Sweden, I think. 
Well, I would like to say, generally speaking, the wealthy people. <laughs> so yeah. uh, people with money are the people that engage guides. And, and you know, obviously you can come up with some good people, but th there are also people who, because they have money, they think they can actually buy the outcome uh, and they put pressure on you. So I, I, I recognize that. And recently um, I did some sort of volunteer work, actually, with y youth. Um, who were sort of on outward bound. There's a thing called the Duke of Edinburgh Award, which uh, we have in the UK, which t introduces people into the outdoors. And I, I thought that was absolutely fantastic because I went right back to the grassroots, to, uh, to youngsters who were just wanting to engage in the mountains. They, there's no way they'll be able to hire a guide. So I, I just felt that was a really good thing to go back to because I, I just felt... Um, it's not all about money, you know, it's not all about money and, and engaging me okay to earn a living, but I, I, for that, it, it's more than that for me about introducing people into the mountains, so that's just a thought. Um, and another thing that I've thought of, you already touched upon, is that the, the core of the profession is, is so basic, so it's, it's kind of, hmm. it's, it's, it's impossible to kind of change and make that more efficient and so on. I mean, you're not IT consultants that you can kind of replace with an AI app or something. Um, you have to like people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but, um, yeah. but what parts of the mountain guide profession can you improve? What, what, what part of the profession is, has seen the most changes over the years, if you know what I mean? I think that the development of technology is something that can help enormously. Because a lot of the work is like preparing and knowing the right conditions on the route and all things like that. And especially if you go to a new area where you haven't been before, you need to sort of learn about it, read into it. And I think technology like smartphones is very, you can document very easily and share. So I, I could see like a professional app for mountain guides that would be sharing route data. Uh, so you would put in everything you do and you get access to what everybody else do. I mean, like, that An could open be... Open source database. Yeah, but, but you need to run it. But I could see that kind of application work. I don't know if there's a business in it, but it, 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 it would be a, a powerful tool for guides if you can... Uh, with the skills that the mountain guide have, you, you need to add judgment to that information, which is not what you maybe get if it's like on an open internet forum. So, yeah, I think that could be one thing that where you could leverage on the skills and experience of other guides and share that information. Make yeah. planning easier, but, yeah. but, but still, I mean, once you're out there on the mountains, there's not much you can do when you set the plan and so on, and you can No, no, but, but I mean, like, that would be the... Uh, the flip side of that would, of course, be that historically you had the local guides that had the local and knew all the... So there would be, like, a, a conflict to share that information with others, but, but I'm just sort of painting a picture of what could be done. That's, it's, it's quite interesting, that, because um, we are, it's... In social media, we're surrounded by influencers, and um, influencers, are, you know, can become 
great influencers just by the volume of time they spend in social media, but what they're telling may not be the truth, and it might be misleading for the public. And so that's why I think for um, the mountain guides and SBO is to really position yourselves as great influencers, and social media plays a really important part of that. So you can put yourself in that influencer position, then I think that's a good position into the future. Uh, speaking to you, Jonas, as a younger generation, <laughs> first of all, why did, you, why did you decide to become a mountain guide? What, what brought you into this career path? Um, <clears throat> I think just uh, that I noticed how much I love to be outside and just like share my passion uh, uh, to, to more people, take people outside and show them what we actually can do there because it's like um, especially in, in Finland where I come from it's like the mountains we don't have any mountains to start with so if I can show like what's possible what we can do out there it's like it's amazing I, I can open up a new world kind of to these people and yeah, I think that's um, one of the main reasons. And, and when we're talking about like social media, for instance, I mean, you have a social media, you have an Instagram account and so on. You think that, that you will um, come into this with, with uh, other tools than the uh, uh, generations before you, that you will work in a different way? Because I think with social media and as a mountain guide, you, you, you gain a big marketplace and you kind of a window to the world, make yes. it easier for people to find you and book you and so on. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, necessary tool these days it's like can you kind of almost have to use it i mean i think when uh, well i'm an aspirant now i haven't been working for too long and have one and a half years a bit more now so uh, i i'm still building up and like hoping that i will get returning customers and, uh, and guests like uh, like i think mark mentioned that you can build this relationship mm -hmm. yeah. um but I feel like, especially now to start, it's a, it's a powerful and a necessary tool nowadays to have like this social media, uh, Instagram and, and so on to, to show uh, as many people as possible <laughs> what you're doing, what you're up to, what you can uh, provide. Have you revised your marketing strategies, the ones that's been longer in the game? Um, yes, it's it's a pretty interesting. Uh, when I look back, when the GoPro came, I had clients uh, and me myself. I had one uh, GoPro in the back and one in the front, and we did a lot of time uh, in the day to just record uh, this material. So it was updating the the Facebook and whatever. And it was like the clients were really into it, and I got into it uh, like marketing, and it was for fun. It's kind of a product that's inside the guiding to to get that good footage. Yeah? But for me, it it ended up coming uh, becoming too much of the time looking for that documentary material uh, to be because it took time and focus and energy from yeah. From it it's more important to get that photo or, or video than to be there in the present, to be in nature, to be connected together, experiencing this unbelievable sunset or sunrise or, or powder. How was the shot? I was like, so I, I more or less stopped myself actually because for me it became 
uh, a threat to my, uh, my own way how I wanted to be in nature. And I think that's, if I look forward, I think it can, it can become too much with social media and so on. You need to market for sure to show that you're in the game and that you're doing good stuff and you're in, uh, yeah, as a product. But be careful not to make it more important than the mm -hmm. core than the quality. of your activities. Yeah. And the relationship with people. Oh, we're out here together. We don't need to have the, uh, the smartphones out all the time because it can also pull you Live away from moment. assessing the dangers and, and so on. I mean, instead of yeah, taking photos and films. And um, taking all this in, into consideration and try to look forward, like say five to ten years, uh, how do you all think that the mountain guide profession will develop? How will it look like in ten years? Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it has a bright future because I think as Mark said, you need wealthy people as clients and I think what I see as trend in society is you get uh, a separation, so you get, I see it in Sweden, you get more wealthy people. Uh, and that trend is uh, is continuing, and that creates new customers, basically. For the, in addition to that, I think uh, I said earlier that I see this trend of health and, and spiritual yoga. Or, I mean, like this place here in in Southern, uh, and that will also have people moving for these kind of experiences. So that's like a, a, a second thing that I think is important. And actually, thirdly, I think that society is getting more and more regulated, if I may use that word. Like, w when, when we were kids, you could do stuff and no one knew, and it was like, it was the assessment of someone to say, yeah, that's okay. Nowadays, you can't do like that because then there should be a protocol and who was responsible and did, was that signed off and, and that sort of, um, uh, I don't know, regulatory environment, I choose to call it, makes also people more afraid of going out in the mountains without a guide. But I can't go out, it must be dangerous to go out on my own and so I need to hire a guide. So. Um, yeah, so I think those. I think it's a bright future. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Uh, yes, I would say when I started uh, uh, with the clients, you started in the Alps and then you skied a couple of places in the Alps and then they wanted to go to Japan and then they wanted to go to India and uh, South America and I was like traveling uh, so much, uh, doing new things with the, the returning clients. And now, suddenly I realized that I have a bigger carbon footprint than uh, most uh, CEOs, you know. Uh, so that global warming and uh, the carbon the footprint I have and my clients have, um, I mean, in Sweden they have this uh, scum or... Yeah, Fleek scum. Yeah, fleek scum. And I think uh, some people will n not bother with it, and some people will adapt. But I think also that it's going to be more have to be more expensive to fly in the future. So I think this way of this, this SBO guide worked a lot like that: traveling, traveling, traveling. And I, 
in the old days it was the guide in the valley in Chamonix. Mm -hmm. He worked in the Chamonix Valley. That was his domain. And then you have the Cermat, yeah, and so on. So that's, I think it's going to go a little bit... Back to basics. Yeah, not back, back, but uh, for, in some ways it's going to be more limited to travel all, all over the place, I think. That's in the future. And, and maybe find more ways to work. You have a base and you work maybe in that country or something like that. Jonas and Mark, any final thoughts? We're running out of time. Yeah. You have something? Yes. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, for me, uh, it's two very clear things. The first thing is that uh, the, there's a significant climate change and that's having a significant impact on the mountains. Um, us as as the guardians of the mountains, if you like, we are, have a job to do in terms of explaining to people what's happening. That changing environment is really becoming more hazardous. So again, you know, we can introduce people safely into those places. And then lastly, I would say you need to recognize what you have in your own country in Sweden, which is probably one of the last great wildernesses certainly in Europe, if not in the world. And so it's not always about going away to other places. You have a fantastic place and uh, you have a fantastic organization. So think, think of your home market as well. So Thanks. Jonas, your future, your future workplace, what do you think of it? Uh, well, I live in, in Switzerland. I've been living there for the last seven, seven years. And uh, what Mike just said, like about coming a bit back to this base and like working in this one one country maybe a bit more i can see that happening as well like you said about flying and so on uh, in switzerland it's for example it's quite easy to come to the mountains with trains and so on so uh, there's already been some change that i've noticed that people want to use that advantage and like not maybe necessarily fly somewhere but just take the train from their home go maybe to the other side of the country, but but still, you know, like traveling uh, with the train and, and close by and so on. So, and it's all hope for the more positive trends then. Um, thank you so much for the discussion and uh, lunch time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Efter lunch och panelbyte gav vi oss in i nästa samtal. Denna gång med titeln A Fragile Life in the Mountains. We are going straight to the next uh, talk uh, which will uh, be about 45 minutes and uh, after that Oscar will go through the criteria for the competition. All right. Okay. Magnus, take it away. Uh, thank you so much and welcome back. Uh, to, a, to a fresh set of uh, guests. And um, uh, first of all, uh, we can introduce yourselves, perhaps, starting with you, Karin. Yes, so my name is Karin. I'm an aspirant mountain guide. Um, yeah, coming originally from Switzerland, but now living both in uh, Sweden and Switzerland. That's maybe a short, short description. Uh, my name is Linus. Uh, I entered the guide program 2004 and I lived uh, in the Alps for the first 10 years and uh, now I live in uh, Boesland. Yes, my name is actually Martin, Martin Lundberg, uh, but everybody calls me Bruce. I'm a mountain guide and I entered education in 2010, I think. I've been very active up in, in the northern part of uh, Scandinavia, but I also guide in Europe and uh, different parts of the world. Yeah, so my name is uh, Robin, uh, Robert, and uh, I'm a mountain guide from Iceland uh, from the last graduation class of SPO. Uh, the last few years I've been living in Switzerland and working there mostly, but uh, now I'm back to Iceland, back to the basics, and live and work there. Um, and we will dive headlong into the real deep issues. Uh, uh, being a mountain guide, uh, operating in the type of environment and circumstances as you do, it's, uh, as we all know, a very risky environment. Um, so, uh, working in a risky environment uh, where you uh, might end up facing li life and death situation, it's, it has to be very important that you do it for the right reason, reason uh, and that you really have the passion for it. Um, has there been any times or reasons that you have to kind of uh, kind of pause and, 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 and um, reorient yourself to kind of find the real reason why you are doing this because uh, you might potentially end up in a very dangerous situation and you don't want to do that if you don't do it for the right reasons. Yeah, when you start uh, this uh, mountain uh, sports or whatever you call it, uh, you do it for yourself uh, and you develop and try to be better and better. And then you start to uh, start this guided education and you start guiding and suddenly your own um, 
uh, aim and goals sets aside, and you're there for the clients and, and trying to uh, receive uh, their goals and their dreams. Uh, and that passion, uh, you need that kind of passion to be a, a good mountain guide, I think. Um, and why you do it is, uh, <laughs> it's a big and difficult question. Uh, it's uh, it, to be part of somebody that re uh, receiving their, their dream or goal in life and be a small part of that is very rewarding, I would say. Uh, so I think that's a big, big thing that keeps my passion going out, uh, working for achieve other people's goals and dreams and, and, and be, be part of that. Anyone else? I mean, you haven't worked for as long as, as Bruce has, but uh, I think you, you, can, you can understand the mindset as well. Do you, do you have any thoughts about this? About doing this for the right reasons? Yeah, I think the passion part is very important. Because if you lose that, it's very hard to be a mountain guide. Because it is a physical and mentally challenging job. Like, you always... Um, yeah, so if you don't have that, it's going to be hard. But as Bruce was saying, your own focus and your own personal challenges are maybe not the focus. Uh, but yeah, I think there needs to be also a passion to share that with other people and uh, spread or take people into environments they wouldn't be able to go themselves. Uh, but if you don't have passion when you do that, I don't think you would be a very good guide. Uh, and clients notice that. And I have, have had periods when I've been working maybe a little bit too much, and I had to take a step back and take a break. And I'm remembering every time coming back and you feel the passion is back, it's so much easier to work, and the, definitely the clients knows it a lot. Anyone else? Yeah, I think I can agree on that. Um, I believe, we talked about it yesterday a bit, about the passion, and I was actually a bit afraid that I could lose it to, while doing the education, because all of a sudden you have to do certain things. Um, and so I was afraid to lose it, but I, I do hope I won't. And I think if this would be the case, then it's maybe time to just step back a bit, as you said, and just to recharge. Because it, be, it would be a pity to lose this passion, because I, I guess that everyone who's sitting here um, started because they were passionate about being outdoors. Um, but then all of a sudden you can share it and you can, um, it's another aspect, it's more this uh, social aspect maybe, or giving it back to someone else. And then again, I, I guess it's also important to kind of remember to take care of yourself and your own hobbies, kind of, to, to uh, allow yourself to go on tours with friends rather than just clients, to uh, not get too greedy and uh, work with clients all the time, but do stuff that perhaps might be a bit risky that you do it for your own for your own like to kind of push yourself right yeah for me that is key to allow you to have some time for yourself to keep develop yourself uh, and push yourself in the mountains as well because otherwise you will go backwards in your own skill set if you only 
guide and you're, you're kind of doing at a level that is a little bit below what you would do by yourself. And as you said, it's also really important to to keep the passion. And it is a big difference to be out in the mountains by yourself or with clients. Because when you're out with clients, you're constantly thinking about their needs and their safety. And when you're out by yourself, you have a completely different freedom. So yeah, that is very important. Um, I don't know if you got the answer to this, but uh, do you know like the the drop-off rates uh, for mountain guides? Like, is it common that once you you get the badge, is it like a lifelong mission, or is it is it common that after a couple of years it's it gets too much and they decide to do something else? I don't know. What's your uh, I think um, uh, most guides uh, have a 10-year period of full-time guiding. Uh, then uh, some stop guiding or not guiding full-time after about... I think the breaking point is about 10 years, maybe. But there are many guides that just goes on and on and, and do it full-time until they can't walk. <laughs> I mean, it, it is hard work and it's a long way from family. So in the beginning, I guess people are really eager to like get their, uh, to, to progress in the, the guiding stream. But after a while, maybe they need to step back to kind of find a balance for family and just personal life. Um, how would you, how would you, guys describe the mountain guide community uh, like the what kind of contact you have kind of unofficial contact in between each other because there's like no matter if we're talking about risk passion or thoughts of advice to the younger generation like do you have uh, and in hard times if someone's going through a rough patch or something with accidents and so on like how would you describe how does the mountain guide community react and react when it comes to this I can uh, um, I can start from um, from the first um, the guiding community is super strong I would say we um, wherever you uh, the Swedish mountain guides we all know each other and very strong and supporting to each other we can always ask question that's my feeling and even if you travel somewhere and meet other guides that you never met before from another country. Uh, we're still tr strong together and we help each other. Um, the, the whole community all over the world is, is impressively uh, strong and helpful, I would say. Uh, it's, I think it's hard to find that in any other... Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> important in all steps of the way. Like We all need information from each other, networking and also work. We share work a lot. Um, so every time when I go to a new place I've never been before, the first thing I do is contact the local guide bureau. And in my experiences, they are always very welcoming. And uh, it differs how active they are, but I found in small Alp villages, quite often they meet every evening and they share stories of the day, experiences, have a glass of wine. And it's a goldmine for information, especially if you're new to the area. But also, sometimes if you go to a place where there's not that many guides, I can experience 
if there's just one local guide in the area and he's worked by himself, there can be a, a big need for talking about difficult experience that he can't share with anyone else. And I think we have that in this community as well, in the Swedish Guide Association, that it's a place where we can share experiences. To, the, to be part of this organization is also uh, uh, so something that helps your passion, I would say, to be, to be a member of this. But is there within the SBO, is there kind of a official kind of helpline, if you will? Like uh, there are structure for this. If someone ends up in a bad situation and have difficulties, like be it mentally or economic, economical or whatever, like, but is there a, a working structure for this? We, d we do have like a, a doctor, like an SBO doctor that and I think on the last annual meeting uh, it was introduced and uh, that's someone we can call with problems whether it's you know regarding a tour or personal issues or anything related to the, the guide community and then I guess the board we can always contact them in case of anything we need. Yeah we have a, a contact person within the association but also like the people that you went through the the guide school with, they become really close. So I think a lot of the guides, they use that group as a debrief group. Yeah, and, and because the community, it is so small that you would maybe start with your, you know, classmates and then it quickly expands. So to find the link from here and to, you know, Japan, it only takes like three, four people maximum. So it's a very well internationally kind of connected network. A lot of shared experiences, so yeah, it's I mean, easy to put yourself in the other guy's shoes. Everyone has been through the same suffering, so <laughs> everyone is friends. <laughs> and uh, Karin, I was thinking because yeah. this is um, still a very like, male-dominated uh, profession in many ways, uh, you as a, as, a, as, a, as a woman, um, do you feel that you have a, a strong female network for this? Uh, actually, I just talked to one of the girls down in the changing rooms. And I think, um, obviously, there are not so many women. But the positive effect of that is that I actually have a lot of international friends. Because there are such a few. So you got to know a lot of people from different countries which is super fun. And I believe, I think it's partially because you say we suffer through the same things, but I think um, a passion about something, activities, it could also be music, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be sports, but that's usually something which connects. And um, so it's easier to connect to people. Um, doesn't matter if they're coming from another country or if they have a, a completely different age than you have, but it's very easy to connect. And I, yeah, I definitely think I, I have the fortune to, um, that I have a lot of um, other female, female guides from different other countries. Um, this, is, this is super fun, yeah. But is it, how is the development in that ratio? Is it um, <laughs> getting more and more female guides into the business or...? 
and why why is it still uh why do you think that there still are a lack of females yeah well i can't really answer that question because i think it's very difficult to answer it um so i don't have the statistics in mind i mean i know that it's like uh, in europe two to three percent um i believe what i know talk to um uh, to colleagues in mine in germany i think they had more uh, the last couple of years um, in germany as well as in, in austria um, we i guess we have to work a bit in sweden here as well but we are less people anyhow um, I don't know, I guess the role model is, um, I mean, I had uh, role models, <laughs> but it's still, um, I remember the first time when I came to the yearly meeting, I thought like, oh, this, the whole room is like full of men. <laughs> A lot of beard. A lot of beard. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, but uh, I felt very welcomed uh, from the start. Um, and I mean, yeah. I guess it's a long way to go, but I, I can't really um, answer for all the others, right? It's too complex. But are there, would you say that there are other types of challenges as female mountain guides that they encounter with uh, regards to clients and so on that you've heard of? That, that uh, I mean, I've heard stories before that they some feel that they have to kind of prove themselves in a different way if they encounter new guides. In encounter new uh, clients and so on. Um, I can only, I mean, Speak I heard these stories as well, right? Yeah. I can only answer from my perspective. And I felt that I was equally treated like everybody else, completely. Um, and as I said, very welcomed. Yeah. Um, so. Um, I think we've all heard the stories about astronauts leaving planet Earth for the first time and they turn around and look back at the planet and they get kind of a uh, realization of the fragile life uh, on this unique planet and so on. Uh, is, it, is, it, is it just a naive uh, wish from a naive interviewer that you working as mountain guides will have somewhat similar experiences, uh, both, both with regards to the human life, but also with regards to climate and planet and uh, glaciers and the seasons and the climate change and so on? Take it away. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we work in an environment where we see the climate changes very clearly, and we are very affected of it. Well, I think uh, we all had that experience a long time ago when we all fell in love with the mountains. And I think for anyone who chooses to be a mountain guide as a career, we had that experience as youths going into the mountain because it completely changed our lives. We devoted our life to it. And I, I'm sure everyone have their own unique experience with that. But the mountains are, for most parts, unexploited to a certain degree. So it's a, it's a place to go in and come in close contact with nature. And in this highly developed part of the world, that is quite rare. Uh, and to do that together with the strong experiences you get when you're in the mountains, I do think that changes. And you can see it in clients as well. 
I think all of us had had quite a few clients who at the end of the day says this was the best day of my life. So they are connected to strong experiences. And uh, hopefully <laughs> you can uh, also affect people and that they bring something back to their everyday life after that. To go into nature, experience it, and hopefully feel that this is something that I want to be a part of preserving. And yes, we experience the changes on a daily basis. And just over the, is it 18 years I've been involved with this, there's been some big changes. So yes, we do, do all see that. What I think people focus too much on mountains, because, you know, you have this experience on the mountain and, you know, the mountain guide and all this utopian uh, image that people have. The, the mythical beast yeah, of the mountain guide. But in the end, we are service providers and caterers. And our guests, that's what we have. And we take them around to, to enjoy the day. If you, as a guide provide a bad service or you're like you're rude and boring you know the day is not going to be great the same is the other way around if if your client doesn't if you guys don't click and there is no connection throughout the day it's just another walkabout so it's a really fine line of just delivering nice mountains but you also have to connect with the people and I mean, my best memories from work is not like the picture's view. It's the really uh, nice moments I had with nice people. I learned a lot, and they learned a lot, and that's kind of what I can take from it. But being on the mountain on a good day or skiing this powder slope is awesome. But it's even better when you just met a friend. But this with... Um uh, we talked about the mountain guide community and the changing of the environment and so on. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that, like for instance, in the in the Alp regions, when the the seasons change and it's postponed, and it feels like sometimes the windows of opportunity get smaller and smaller, and the demand of, to go there from the from the crowds and from the clients get just keeps increasing everybody wants to have a piece of that is there like a growing sense of um, uh, competition that you feel that you have to in order to keep your status with your clients you have to be able to take them to this and this area and provide this and this experience but then you have a hundred other local and European guys in the same situation and you're all kind of you know, aiming for that because everybody wants to experience the same mountains. Uh, all the clients want to experience the same mountains and so on. So there's uh, increased competition. So like everyone is kind of on the bucket list program? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Things come in to fashion. I mean, I haven't been so long involved, right? But... Um, I guess some, yeah, for, of course, but I think there's also an increasing demand 
um, which obviously makes it harder to navigate if you're at the same place, but gives you also a lot of opportunities because you have, a, you have maybe more people to choose uh, who you want to guide with, right? I mean, I guess the demand is, is increasing and they're right now at least. Um, there is not enough mountain guides there. So it's a bit both. There is definitely all this information and all this pressure. You want to go and tick this mountain, but at the same time, it's also an increasing demand. And maybe if you're <laughs> smart enough, you can maybe just change that a bit and direct you towards another location. Uh, maybe that's a bit naive, because I haven't been so <laughs> long involved, but that's my perspective, at least. I don't feel that there is any competition because um, the, the clients are getting, it, it's more and more popular to go out in the wilderness and, and explore and, and, and we are getting, we are growing as an organization but I don't, during the high seasons we are too, too few mm. actually still. Um, so if, if you, um, yeah, so I, I, can, I, don't, I don't feel that at all actually. And of course, if you're doing the highest peak in different parts of the world, they are always crowded and there you can feel the competition. And uh, there's just one mountain and they're getting more and more people to the highest mountain all over the world. So there you can feel the competition, but not, uh, not like everyday guiding style, I would say. I spent my first winter in the Alps, 99 and compare what happened from 99 to 2014 when I moved back to Sweden, I've, I've, I noticed a dramatic change uh, in the amount of people who were skiing off piste from the ski systems. So that's changed a lot. Um, but then I moved back to Sweden, now I mainly guide in the southern part of Norway. And even though there's increasing demand or a lot of new um, partakers in ski touring, I don't really notice it because there's still a lot of mountains and quite few people. And I think there's like a tendency in all outdoor activity that people tend to go to the same places. So you have these mountains that are written about, their guidebooks that recommend them, and everyone goes there, which means 99% of the, the rest is left alone. So, yeah. Then again, it's, it's, perhaps it's up to you as mountain guys to kind of to, to, uh, talk about different offers. Like, to, we have these mountains as well. Like, not mm -hmm. everyone needs to go to, to Chamonix all the time, but you can, you can, like, for instance, you, Bruce, you, you've decided to spend a lot of time in Sweden, for instance, work more and more there. And that was a discussion we had in the other group that, uh, way back in the day, it was more like every guide, you went to a place and the, the, the local guides did the local guiding. And then you had a couple of years when guides were flying all over the world, literally, um, to guide in, you know, on, on all over the world. And, and now it, it kind of the trends are, it's, it seems to go back to, to, uh, to kind of get out about that store, to kind of make the most of the, the local places that you know the best. Um, what are your thoughts on that, on that trend, and, and your own decisions, where you want to work and where you want to spend your future? I'm, I'm trying to um, uh, uh, to choose 
closer places to travel, mostly, hopefully and mostly by train. I still fly every now and then, but I try to do it more locally. Uh, and there is, if you can, there is so much to do. Uh, closer and great adventures and, and stuff. And uh, as you said, it, there are more people out there, which is in, in Northern Sweden, we just welcome it. Uh, but as you say too, the, the important thing is that everybody goes to the same place. So we as the mountain guides maybe have to navigate a little bit more to find those spots where we can find untracked snow, for example. Um, Any other thoughts? Um, yeah, I started my career in the Alps and I was based in Chamonix and even though I was local there, didn't do much traveling, all my clients were flying down. I had a lot of clients from Scandinavia and England and sometimes even from the States and uh, it didn't really sit right at all from the beginning but that feeling of increasing maybe not my own carbon footprint but I was still being a part of it, because I was offering this service in the Alps. So my thought was to move back to Sweden and show the local mountains there, uh, to, have, to, to work locally and also try to have local clients. So that was my shift. I moved back to Sweden or close to Norway and I, I work in the southern part of Norway. And I've set like a, a border uh, that I won't go beyond and I try to find the best skiing in that area and it's amazing like there are really good mountains three hours from Oslo no people there are no guidebooks for these areas but they're quite obvious if you read the maps there's fantastic snow a really interesting terrain and there's quite a lot of guides Norwegian guides who live in Oslo but they don't work around there they go maybe up to Songdal or even further, Lofoten or Lingen, which I think is it's a shame because there's so much nice terrain just in their backyard. I think it connects back to the previous discussions about the Instagrams. So people have some sort of an idea, they want to go somewhere and go skiing, but you can ski there, do the same kind of skiing in you know, different countries. Uh, so often you might be just crossing the stream to fetch the water, if you will. Uh, but uh, but it's at the same time, it's, it's hard to sell the idea to your customer that already has a mental picture of what he wants and he wants kind of what everyone else has been doing. And it's, although you try to sell him the same, it's the same, same, but it's not. It's a challenge for us. Well, the clients, they, they, they are like shopping. They, when they want to shop a jacket, they want to have a jacket with a special brand. And when they go ski touring, they want to go to a special brand, like Lyngen or Chamonix. Ticket off the list. Yeah. Mm. So that's uh, what we're working against, I think. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a big difference if you have clients that have been with you for a long time and they, they want the good skiing that is their main focus, then it's a lot easier to choose places that is unknown. They might even like it because it is unknown. 
but to sell it to someone you never met before, they don't know who you are or what you can deliver. Maybe they not skied with a guide before. Yeah, then for sure, I think it's uh, a lot easier to sell these already uh, quite high-profile places. So, so if you take a little bit deeper down, if you're competing on the open market and you're relying on you know Google search engine ranking and, and so on, that if you don't sell products that you know have high ranking, like and that's in your keywords and your target kind of sales text, then you're just going to rank on page two or three, which means nobody finds you. So it's from a different perspective also. And, and speaking of offering different stuff, I mean, we, we are always very focused to winter. We talk a lot about winter and skiing and so on. Um, but there is something called summertime as well and autumn, and you can do fun stuff in the summertime as well. Is, is that a change in, over, the, over the years that this has become easier or more difficult to work like all year round, like providing climbing expeditions and courses and so on? In, in, uh, and now we're talking about the Scandinavian context. Uh, do you feel that there's a reception of, of clients that they, they, they look for summer activities as well, not only wintertime? Um, the market in Norway that I'm most familiar with has been growing enormously over the last few years. Uh, the Norwegian Mountain Guide Association is also becoming more and more recognized in Norway, mainly because, or as we are becoming more recognized in Sweden as well. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, they had to go to the outside Mountain Guide to realize what that was, to come back and find out that you can hire a guide in Scandinavia as well and have the same experience or similar. Um, and in Norway, they definitely have that alpine terrain and there is a market for it. Um, it's not as big as in the Alps and it's uh, located to a few places. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a market for it. I don't think that is as well known in Sweden as in Norway because they have their own Matterhorn that everyone want to climb. Uh, we don't have the same iconic places in Sweden. Uh, no, we don't always is, uh, is better than that. But uh, I do a lot of guiding in summertime in Sweden. Uh, and the most uh, thing that's growing is uh, courses. They want to learn to do this on their own. Like uh, glacier courses and alpine climbing courses is, is growing every year. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's really fun. And, and uh, pe people want to go out there and do stuff. Um, we ended the, the first discussion with a try to look, look ahead like five to ten years in the future and I'm going to ask you the same, like what do you see in the future for the mountain guide profession, perhaps for you as well, but, but also for the development of the mountain guide profession. Where do you see it in, in ten years? Well, the, the problem is the climate changing. Uh, and uh, in the Alps last winter was not so much snow and this summer was super super warm and if it continues like this it, the glaciers will be gone in like 25 and 30 years if we have the same pattern so that's a big issue and a big concern uh, I was working a lot in Swiss Alps la last summer and we were uh, we have a guide meeting every uh, night before dinner with the other guides. 
that's uh, from, from all over Europe. And the main discussion was what are we going to do in the future and how are we going to, to work? Um, they're not super worried, but everybody feels that we have to do some changes along the way if this is going to continue. What are the others? Yeah, what I feel what's happening around me is that after COVID, a lot of people were forced to take time off. So, you know, they were at home. And I think that was a good realization for a lot of people that it's nice to be home also. Um, and I think uh, more guides are trying to work locally, uh, both to be close to home and have less impact uh, on the environment. At least that's what I've been hearing around me here in SBO, that people are want to travel less, maybe. Was a shift. A shift, a shift happened in the how you can work and what you really want to do. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, many, many, many people or guides reconsider their their way, way of guiding and way of their style of traveling, I think. It's a difficult question to, to wrap your head around. Like you have a tendency, or at least I do, to, to think about the future with the reference of the past. So even though you know these changes are coming, you still have the reference of, yeah, but there is a winter coming every winter. And there's snow every winter. There was snow last year, so there will be snow next winter. And you know these changes are coming, and you know they're coming faster and faster. Uh, so it's a very hard question to face and to, to answer. I think the demand for mountain guides is growing, but who knows, there might not be a, a place to, to actually work. It's just going to be a, lo a very long summer season. Yeah. Karin? Yeah, I think I agree with you guys. Um, the demand is definitely there, or even yeah, maybe higher but it's maybe more difficult to work in, um, in situations. I, I mean, you have to adapt, of course. Um, it could be uh, also related to the topic, just um, the previous discussion. Uh, I guess um, seasons are not so st stable and not uh, so easy to foresee. So maybe you have to be um, more... Um, you, you cannot plan it in at, at at once as easily, so it might be just uh, harder. Um, but I, I, I hope, and I mean, there is still stuff to do, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done the training. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be important to kind of find that, not not see it as a positive thing or negative thing, but as kind of an objective thing, and kind of uh, try to look try to make the, the most of it and try to make the best of it and, and what you said that the most important things is the meetings with the, with the clients and the people and that's going to be the same in, in 10 years as it is today hopefully uh, at least for me yeah yeah um, so thank you so much for this discussion and uh, good luck in your future profession this winter thank you thank you thank you, you. Thank you.
Stort tack för att ni lyssnade. Och utan att lova allt för mycket så kommer detta inte vara det sista avsnittet av Husky. Så häng gärna med ett tag till. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.